President of the United States walks through a path violently cleared of peaceful protesters. All of this for a photo op. In awkwardly holding a Bible, he seeks to cast himself as the defender of Christian faith. In the following days, the only Christians to defend such action come from a branch of Christian faith given to what is called religious nationalism. Faith in politics, faith in power, have been intimately intertwined, including in the United States, for some time. Our guest today, Catherine Stewart, has recently released a book called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. The book is an examination of Christian nationalism, which Stewart says is not on the fringe of American political life anymore. It is at the center of power, and it now poses a real danger to our republic. Some of the topics we'll discuss may be uncomfortable. I found this to be the case as in preparation for this episode, I came across so many names or people and organizations familiar to me in my evangelical upbringing. It may be that leaders within the movement should be taken down from the pedestals that they've been placed upon. Their elevation may have more to do with politics and power than with faith, and it may benefit them and us if some of this power was questioned, even by their followers. I read a quote recently about how many of the people walking away from Christian faith are doing it not because they have become too secularized or because they find church boring, but rather because the faith that was handed to them simply wasn't good enough. It was racist, sexist, homophobic, and xenophobic. We can be better stewards of the Christian faith than this. We need not be defined by who we are against. We are called to reflect the love of God, who is for everyone. Christians need not live in fear of Christian faith being legislated out of existence. Christians are to live in hope. If God is as powerful and loving and as merciful as I believe God to be, then the thought that humanity could somehow thwart this love is absurd. If a leader by way of tear gas and rubber bullets claims to defend religious freedom, we can simply reply instead with justice, kindness, and humility. Knowing how we got here will help us move forward. So we invite you to enter in with curiosity and courage. Are we on the verge of actual change? There is nothing good about religious nationalism. It is idolatry masquerading as faith. But Christian faith and history have left far worse behind before. In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So... Welcome to Rector's Cupboard. This is actually episode number two in a special series that we're putting together on 2020. Is this a horrible year? Uh, we're pleased to welcome today Catherine Stewart, who has written on a topic that we're speaking about for this episode, religious nationalism or Christian nationalism. 
Catherine's work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the American Prospect, the Atlantic, and uh, many other publications. She's the author of The Good News Club, an investigation of the religious right and public education. But we're here to speak with Catherine about her most recent book uh, called The Power Worshippers. Subtitle is Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. It's a fantastic book. You should go out and get it and read it. Um, but uh, we're really, really pleased to, to welcome Catherine here today. Welcome. Nice to see you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I, I wanted to start off with it's kind of contemporary political stuff um, and this scene from June 1st. Uh, which is still getting the news, although it seems it seems like uh, you know a decade ago with how things go, particularly in your country right now in the United States. So this is the image of Donald Trump holding up the Bible in front of St. John's Episcopal Church after having walked through an area cleared of peaceful protesters by rubber bullets and tear gas. How is this image the culmination thus far of the religious nationalism that you talk about in your book? Well, it's classic religious nationalism, a conflation of patriotism, uh, a, a certain understanding of the Christian religion and militarism. Uh, when Trump uh, you know, had this uh, Lafayette Square cleared of peaceful protesters with rubber bullets and tear gas in order to have his symbolic Bible photo op, he was basically conveying the fact that he would be willing to call in the forces of the military to, um, you know, to quelch, you know, squash his, his political enemies. Uh, and that was really quite dangerous. I think his most uh, staunch supporters suggested that they would go along with the program happily. Franklin Graham mm -hmm. praised that moment. Uh, Tony Perkins did as well, I believe. Uh, Robert Jeffers said something nice and compared him at that moment to uh, uh, George Washington in a certain way, compared that moment to a sort of imagined scene of George mm -hmm. Washington kneeling in prayer in Valley Forge, which has uh, actually been disputed. But uh, it was it was a concerning moment. I mean, at that moment, you know, I think a lot of American politicians at various times have appealed to religious language and religious imagery in order to unite the nation. Mm -hmm. This is not what Trump did. He wielded the Bible as um, uh, as a, a symbol of division. It was us versus them, the pure versus the impure. Um, he, he used the Bible in a way as a weapon at that moment, mm -hmm. and he aimed it squarely at the Constitution. Yeah. And, and this is the thing about religious nationalism. It's not a, it's, it's not a democratic movement. It's a, it's a a radical political movement with a great contempt for democracy that sets itself in opposition to uh, the idea of pluralism and equality. Yeah, you, you've said in, in your book, you mentioned that the movement likes to present itself as a conservative movement. But you uh, talk about how it, it really isn't conservative at all. You've just said it already, that, that it's radical. I think for many people who are kind of the foot soldiers of the movement, not the leaders, they, they are potentially buying the idea that it's conservative? Have you found that, some of the distinction between the leaders and the and the kind of the masses, the foot soldiers? Absolutely. I mean, I think when you're talking about the rank and file, you know, the many people who decide to, you know, uh, they go to conservative churches and maybe they uh, pull the lever, lever for Trump or for the conservative politicians that the movement favors. I mean, 
let's start with the fact that you're talking about a very wide range of people with very different interests and backgrounds and ideas. Um, but I think a very substantial number of them do not explicitly support anything like a theocracy. Mm-hmm. I think many of them would be really unhappy to learn all of the details that the leaders are proposing. They might not really understand the economic policies, for instance, that they're voting for that are going to end up um, intensifying economic in- inequality, mm-hmm. hollowing out the social safety net and making life so much harder for American families. They think they're defending the American family. Uh, they don't realize that the policies they're voting for actually mm. make it harder for families to succeed. So I think a lot of them, you know, really are, their identity might be, I would say, Christian nationalist in a very loose way when they mm-hmm. vote for the politician who promises to end abortion or reunite church and state, they're not really arguing for significant changes in how the American government is run. They're really making a statement about themselves mm-hmm. and their own identity and what they value in themselves. But for leaders of the movement, you know, we're talking about the heads of the right-wing policy groups and the networking groups, the media and legislative initiatives, the legal and data organizations, all of the uh, organizations that I write about in my book, The Power Worshippers, For these leaders, their vision involves a lot more power for themselves and their networks and the political leaders they support. Um, Many of them uh, actually look forward to a time when only Christians in their approved versions of the religion, they have a very restrictive idea of versions, um, are on top of all aspects of government and society. There's a sort of dominionist aspect within that um, in in a subsection of the movement. And they're also looking forward, I think, to a time when they can rely on government for two things. The first is a constant flow of taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. And the second is policies that privilege their religion explicitly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, you talk a bit in your book about these these seven mountains, and you link that with dominionist theology. Um, And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those mountains. It was certainly something that even though I grew up in a relatively conservative evangelical upbringing, like I hadn't heard about any of this stuff. <laughs> oh, it's fascinating. Um, well, there's a sub look, the movement is sort of diverse in its theologies. I just want to start off and you know frame this. It includes a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. And what unites the movement is not so much distinct theologies, but a kind of common political vision. So we're talking about ultra-conservative Catholics. We're talking about um, uh, conservative evangelicals and other uh, varieties of uh, Protestant religion. And then there's a subsection of the movement that is explicitly dominionist. The the idea of dominionism um, is that um, uh, Christians of a certain type, again, um, should dominate what they call the seven mountains or molders of culture. Sometimes people refer to them as spheres of culture, which include things like uh, the family and religion, law, government, finance, education, um, uh, entertainment. Mm-hmm. So they've got they've identified these seven mm-hmm. spheres of influence or seven mountains of influence. One of the um, godfathers of Dominionist theology is called C. Peter Wagner. He wrote a book called Dominion: How Kingdom Action Can Change the World, and he advocates this very explicitly. And what I found in the work that I was doing is a lot of the folks I was coming into contact with are either Dominionist adjacent or actually mm. openly work mm. with Dominionists or advocate Dominionist positions. Now, not all of them, of course, but uh, certainly not the hyper-conservative Catholics. I would think that that would be sort of antithetical to their mm-hmm. ideas about theology. But um, 
but there is a certain subsection of the movement that really believes in that sort of um, domination of all aspects of, um, of, of society. You, you've met, I mean, you, you now have these names in your head, right? All these people and you've researched <laughs> clearly so well. I feel a little bit like coming from uh, uh, somewhat of an evangelical background myself and uh, the, it's, it seems like you've gone in research things that many, many of those evangelicals, as we've said, don't know themselves. And you're getting to know these people when you so there was a ruling this week, obviously, you know, this on um, from the Supreme Court in the United States on uh, workplace. So non-discrimination against LGBTQ in the workplace and such. And of course, Franklin came out with his Franklin Graham came out with what you'd expect. You must feel that you could kind of write the script for some of these people when these rulings happen and stuff that you could. So you, you go and read the news article and, and you knew kind of just <laughs> what they were going to say. Or does it does it surprise you ever? their responses still? Well, you can never predict the future. I think that um, under, you know, uh, some of it is very predictable. The movement has really focused so much on what they call gender ideology, mm. or some of them refer to LGBT totalitarianism. Oh. Um, they do it for political purposes. I mean, um, it's very interesting. They're obviously very preoccupied with gender, gender order, and, um, but you know, a lot of it is done again for political purposes, and you have to ask what is the larger um, issue that they're really going for. And I think a lot of times people mistake their actions around LGBT equality or abortion as like they say this is all about a culture war. This is not. This is really a war. Um, this is really about. Um, it's a political movement. Mm -hmm. It's not just a stance in the so-called culture wars. I, so for 10 years, I've been going to these right-wing conferences, like Values Voters Conferences and Road to Majority Conferences and Marches for Life and other strategy meetings and gatherings. Do, do they see you coming um, now? They must, some of them. I always have my real name yeah. um, and I never lie. I, I do try to generally keep my mouth shut and right. my ears open. <laughs> um, I think listening is underrated. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, you have to pay attention to what they say, not just when they're speaking to the general public, but in the forums that they share when they're speaking to sympathetic audiences. Yeah. yeah I guess this gets back to the sort of trans issues that, um, is that a few years ago, every single speaker at a Values Voters Conference got up and said, we've got to talk about transgender bathrooms. They thought that this was going to be <laughs> messaging that they could use almost like as a wedge issue. Yeah. Um, and... I think they figured at some point that people, frankly, don't care if there are trans people in their bathrooms and trans people should be allowed to go to bathroom. I mean, it just seemed like a really, it didn't seem like an issue that had a lot of um, traction for mm -hmm. them. But abortion, for instance, is an issue that's had enormous amount of traction for them. Uh, let's remember that when Roe versus Wade was passed, most Protestant Republicans supported the decision. Yep. They supported some form of abortion law liberalization. Um, but over time, the move um, pro-choice voices were purged from the Republican Party. The issue of abortion was weaponized for explicitly political purposes. This doesn't mean that the movement is really about abortion. There, it's a much broader movement. And um, I learned a lot about that when I, um, for instance, when you read the works of, oh, I mean, any of the major thinkers, if you think about what Ralph Dronger is writing, or if you think about what David Barton is writing, they're advocating for an incredibly wide range of policy positions. A lot of it is about right-wing economic policy. Yeah. 
abortion becomes and these culture war issues uh, like abortion, LGBT equality become ways to get the rank and file to vote for them right. and say, well, I'm yeah. defending the family. You know, I'm, I want to save the babies. And then they, they're ending up, you know, bringing in all these other issues um, mm-hmm. in their policy. I was going to say, it's been, it's been a very powerful motivator because I guess if you can turn people into a single vote, like a single issue voter, you can get anything else by and exactly. just go, but as long as you're, you know, pro-life, then, then that's all fine. Um, and uh, in your book, you, you talk about um, that initially when, <clears throat> sorry, uh, when they started zeroing in on the abortion issue to unite the party, uh, that some of the background and motivation for that had to actually do with segregated schools and making sure that um, certain supporters of the movement could maintain their their schools and their tax-exempt status. Would you mind elaborating on that a little bit for our listeners? Sure. I mean, you're right. There was... Um, uh, 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 there was... Uh, there was a group of folks, including Paul Weirich, Richard mm. Vigri, Howard Phillips, um, uh, Jerry Fowler was part of it, uh, Phil Schlafly uh, as well. There were just a, a number of folks who were really concerned about the direction the Republican Party was taking. We're ta- talking around like in the 70s mm-hmm. and late 70s in particular. They sort of coalesced around this idea that the Republican party was too soft on communism. They were really upset about a lot of other issues. The civil rights movement was a big one. Yeah. They were really, really concerned that the IRS was starting to look at segregated academies, many of which were affiliated with these um, uh, powerful pastors like Falwell and Bob Jones Jr. Um, and they were very uh, worried that they were going to get their tax exempt statuses revoked. They were upset about, you know, public schools and the women's right movement. And there's they, there's a sort of fascinating episode where the leaders of that movement got together and kind of went down a laundry list of the issues they thought might unite their movement. Mm-hmm. And this is like, remember, this is around 1980 or so, around seven years after Roe v. Wade. Right. So abortion yeah. was not really at the top of the list. Um, number one was really what they called the unfair tax treatment of these racist academies. They sort of went down the list and then they got to abortion and it was almost like a light bulb went off. And yeah. like, that could work. So, you know, many conservative leaning American voters <clears throat> have been persuaded, <clears throat> pardon me, over time that abortion is the single most important issue when it comes mm. to their vote. They know very well if you I, get to- I remember- on a binary life or death issue, you've got their vote. Yeah. I remember once speaking to someone who is pretty staunchly conservative and, and that that issue is one that is kind of a litmus test issue to them. And knowing some of the political situation in the United States and, and some of the actual stats on, on abortion, I pointed out that in, in many cases, um, it's in blue states, in Democrat states where abortion is 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 lower than in red states. And so I was asking this person, like, are you, are you uh, actually against abortion or are you really wanting a law against abortion? Because it may be that you, you may want to vote for the Democrat if, <laughs> because they have social programs and things that exist that tend to help people not get into those situations. But, but again, it was towing the party line at that point, which was, and you can see some of this, how this works. And so I thought the abortion stuff was fascinating in your book because I think to outline how some of these things have happened. And again, that it's one of the things that 
I saw in reading it was that as someone who was a pastor for a number of years, I don't think most people uh, within evangelical circles know these things. And uh, it's not to talk like a conspiracy theorist or something. It's just to say, do you know where this came from? Do you know where these kinds of ideas came from? But the but the power is so big. Another thing I wanted to speak about briefly was the the founding myth, particularly in the American context, um, that there are some kind of planks that have to exist for this to work, right? And you research it and, and discover that, or already know probably, but get the information even more detailed that some of those planks are actually pretty shaky. Um, and one of them is this founding myth that that the United States is this Christian nation founded by these, uh, uh, you know, almost like national church fathers. Um, and, and of course, this is not the case at all. But they continue to propagate this. Um, what's What are kind of some of your thoughts there or interaction with people around that issue? Have you spoken to evangelicals who who are kind of released from this misunderstanding or is it too difficult? Well, you know what? The movement does rely on these uh, myth makers. Like I'm thinking about David Barton, who has written a number of books asserting that America was founded as this so-called Christian nation. And he's been sort of peddling this faux history since the early 1990s. He's incredibly popular with his crowd because he tells the stories that they want and actually need to hear. These stories are fundamentally false or misleading, but that doesn't stop him or them. The myths are really necessary to provide cover for the great lie at the center of the movement what they don't want you to know is that America's founders proudly and explicitly created the world's first secular republic. Um, but, uh, you know, his stories are too valuable to discard simply because they're not true. Well, and when, when you kind of realize that there's that sort of uh, cost, like that, that it would cost them that much to actually talk about the real motivation, how how do you even begin to talk about it in one sense without sounding like a conspiracy theorist? Because you end up, I would imagine, if you tried to talk to people who who are really involved with this movement and have bought it and bought, you know, that um, <clears throat> all the ideologies that have been presented to them, have you found that they've been really resistant to believe you when you said, well, maybe you need to look at how this has actually been put together? Yeah, you know, it, you said the word conspiracy. And I have to say, conspiracies happen under the cover of darkness with unnamed yeah. actors. <laughs> this, this is all out. happening out in the open. Right. It's, it's not that they're hiding. It's just I think a lot of folks aren't paying attention. Ah. Oh so much to say here. I mean, the first, you know, it's really hard to talk about the political actions of different religious groups without appearing to bash religion, right. which is one of the reasons why it's so hard. Well, why you do go to quite good, like quite extreme lengths in your book to delineate between the difference there. I, I do want to make sure our listeners understand that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, you know, and, and in terms of, you know, when, once people are sort of persuaded of, you know, a sort of David Barton view of history, it's really hard yeah. to go yeah. in and say, wait a second, let's look very carefully at how he constructed this story. Now, I actually have read a lot of David Barton. I think he's smart enough to understand that there are different interpretations of what he's looking at. Let's just set aside all the quotes that he made up or stuff that wasn't true or the fact that Thomas Nelson Publishing, which is a religious mm -hmm. publishing house, withdrew his book, The Jefferson Lies, because yeah. 
they had problems with it. I mean, this is unprecedented for this religious Christian publishing house to have actually withdraw a book from publication. So mm. Set aside all the stuff that's so clearly made up. I actually think Barton is a, a clever guy. He's smart enough to understand that there are different ways to interpret all the stuff that he's looking at. Mm. But I think for a lot of the folks there, it's like they don't really worry themselves about the details of the history because they truly believe that America should have been founded. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, so it doesn't matter what actually happened yeah. then. No, it doesn't. So I think that what they think is, you know, I'm going to present the details in a way that confirm my core view. Hmm. And um, they those, think that that's what's best for us. Along those lines, uh, you've mentioned to us in conversation earlier, and it's, it's evident in your book, that you have met a number of uh, Christian people who don't identify with this movement and, and really struggle. You do, you do say in your book um, that you say, I believe that some of the most powerful resistance to Christian nationalism may ultimately come from those who identify as Christians themselves. Um, what's been your interaction with some of the people within Christian circles themselves who are really upset or troubled by, by this nationalism? Gosh, so much. I mean, there, I think, you know, most American Christians reject the politics of conquest and division that Mm. this movement represents. Um, They call themselves, you know, um, you know, they say, well, members of the movement assert that they, uh, they can define what Christian is, but the, the words and actions of so many others really contradict that. And this is, you know, Christianity in America has always been so diverse. um, Even from the very beginning, if you look at the, um, time of, um, I mean, let's just go back to the um, uh, the time before emancipation. There were mm-hmm. pro-slavery theologians and there were um, abolitionist theologians. Uh, during the civil rights movement, there were those who used religious imagery and language to argue for mm-hmm. a kind of adoption of universal idea of human rights. And there were those who used their religion. I'm thinking about Bob Jones, who said that uh, segregation is God's established order. Um, when you look at um, movements today, you look at someone like uh, Reverend um, William Barber second, mm-hmm. uh, who has a sort of Moral Mondays movement mm-hmm. and is really trying to argue for racial and economic um, uh, justice and, uh, and LGBT inclusion and other pastors who are sort of arguing for um, a form of religion that uh, asserts its uh, hierarchies that are ordained in God. And I actually think that there are kind of strains that there's a kind of through line with this conflict between liberal interpretation of religion, uh, interpretation of the religion that emphasizes care for the poor and the least of these that asserts our common humanity first and and, uh, doesn't seek to uh, sort people by sort of tribe. And then there's a, a form of faith and I'm sure this is true in every faith. This is not unique to Christianity, that or nearly every faith. You know, then there's a sort of more, I would say, strict interpretations that assert that um, you know insist on a certain type of biblical orthodoxy, um, a very strict interpretation. The idea of America founded as an explicitly Christian nation, mm-hmm. um, austere biblical, biblical literalism, hierarchies ordained by God. I think these. It's it's of- interesting though, right? Because. Biblical literalism, but only with the things that they want to take literally. I mean, they're not going to take something literally like when Jesus says, you know, give all that you have to the poor or something. We don't take that literally, but we take this this kind of other thing literally. Uh, one Kind of a more curious thing along the same line of 
thought for me was you have a chapter in your book um, talking about a, a man named Bill Dallas and Whoa, data yeah. mining and so much of it is connected to yeah. the election uh, 2016 and other things and since. Um, and there's little notes in that chapter that knowing kind of the evangelical culture a little bit and knowing how some of these leaders operate. Bill Dallas says, and I don't, you'd never really know, I mean, you would from meeting some of them, but still, I guess, discernment or guess, uh, which of these leaders believe what they're saying and which of them are just using it. Um, but Bill Dallas has this line about his satellite network. He says, God was telling me to start a satellite network. And over and over again in your book and other things that I've read, these individuals are consistently saying that, well, God told me to do this. Like there's this sanctification of everything that that they're involved with. I was thinking about this with this book. You know, I didn't hear you in the book anywhere saying like, God told me to, to write this book, right? But it, be, it makes them kind of unassailable. And I would think, given what you were just saying, that in that, their first target, in a sense, are what some people would identify as liberal Christians or the people who don't want to yell so much, don't want to holler, don't want to be aggressive because they don't see that as, in a sense, their Christian virtue. So have you seen with work, you know, going to some of these conferences and such, that the first target is within the Christian community itself? Like, be careful, don't trust these other people who say they're Christian. How have you seen that? Well, I, I wish I had all my materials yeah. around me. <laughs> so it's interesting. It, it trickles down so much. So there's, um, you know, I've written a lot about church planting in public schools mm-hmm. and, and over the past 10 years. And in um, my local community outside of New York, um, a public school that has a, a, a church that's in it and it, um, they have a uh, if you look at their materials, they have, they, I mean, this is a, ch- a church that's meeting inside the public school, so they don't have to pay for their own building, et cetera. And they invest a lot of money in written materials. And if you look at their, you know, in the written materials, they actually denigrate liberal interpretations of Christians. Mm. Christianity. They, you know, it's like, I think that um, uh, progressive Christians are often the first and mo- they save some of their most poisonous yeah. words for those who dare to identify as Christians different sort i've heard um these uh, expressed as false theologies um the false uh, prophets and, and, yeah. and that kind of thing and you know it's interesting um they it's often uh, you know even though that type of uh, progressive faith is 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 um has has a, a strong american mm-hmm. tradition and you know many incredibly you know virtuous and wonderful leaders that can be characterized and who are speaking you know very clearly from a place of faith they're often characterized as atheistic it's amazing yeah uh, we're going to bring in we're going to bring in another person who's been listening to our conversation but um has been uh, uh, and has some experience in in the evangelical kind of field. Doesn't so much identify there right now. Um, Ken Ken Best, are you there? Welcome, Ken Best. Hello. There you are, Hi, Ken. Ken. Hi. So, How are Ken, you? you've been listening to this. You used to work yes. for Young Life, right? Um, Catherine, yeah. I, I've read as well the Good News Club. I recommend that our listeners oh my God, go thank and, you. and pick that up. Also, <laughs> yeah. um, is this just before I hand it over to Ken to ask a question or two? Um, was I'm interested in what was the first point of contact for you for this research? It seems like the Good News Club, in terms of your own uh, familial experience and uh, uh, having a, a school that 
you know, your daughter, if, if I remember, was attending, and then there's this good news club, and then all of a sudden you, you realize, or I don't, never, it's never all of a sudden, oh, they're trying to convert my daughter to a particular brand of, of Christian understanding, to, you know, right-wing evangelicalism. Is that, was that an early point of contact? Yeah, that was it. You know, I was living in Santa Barbara. We had a baby boy. I had a baby boy, and our daughter was like in first grade. And I learned that a good news club was coming to our public school. You know, my first thought was, great, I love good news. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic. <laughs> That's awesome. And then I, discovered, I heard that they were teaching non denominational form of religion. I thought non denominational. I thought that meant. Um, non-sectarian. I was really naive. Ah. And our public schools in the same district as Westman College. Some of you are probably familiar with it. It's um, mm -hmm. a well-regarded evangelical college. And uh, most of my friends at the public school, most of my friends, like fellow public school moms were Westmont affiliated. They were either professors or wives of professors. And here's the thing that happened. I learned that this school, I started hearing from other families who, um, whose children went to public schools where these good news clubs had been established. And I started hearing about how the, the children attending the clubs were targeting other kids for faith-based bullying and bigotry. They'd figure out who like the non-Christian was in their class or who oh was going goodness. to the church. And then they'd say to them, you're going to go to hell because you believe in Jesus. And there was a particular incident where these two girls we knew, one was, they're both six years old, and on the playground, one says, one is attending a good news club. She said, you're going to go to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. The other girl said, that's not true. And the teacher overheard this exchange and decided to sort of explain, oh, you know, different people of different uh, religious perspectives believe in these different issues. So the girl who was, who was not attending the good news club, she was fine with that. She was like, yeah, hey, you, can, you have your religion, I have mine. Uh... But see, the girl attending the Good News Club, she was devastated. She started to cry. Hmm. She said, I know it must be true because they taught it to me in school. And right. they don't teach hmm. things in school that aren't true. And that really was an eye-opener to me. I mean, yeah. it gets to part of the problem with these clubs. I don't have a problem with kids talking about their religion at school, but I do have a problem with a group coming into a public school and deceiving little kids into thinking hmm. Their public school endorses a form uh, of religion, yeah. and using their position as a tool to bully and berate their peers. So that really got me set down that path. And then most of here's the other thing. So a group of my uh, <laughs> friends met, for, who were all Westmont affiliated, met with the Good News Club leaders that were coming to our school, and they said, you know, we're Christians too. We believe in the Great Commission. But you're really not right for our school. We'd like to offer you free and better space in the West. Um, it was called the Montecito Covenant Church. It was like the, the church literally next door to the school. I mean, you could see it from the school. And by the mm. way, it's one of the most beautiful churches yeah. I've ever seen. You know, Southern California, the sun, the you know, architecture. It was a beautiful, beautiful church. The Good News Club leaders declined. They insisted. I was like, I want to go to the church after school. Like, why don't they want to do that? You know, and that really made me question, like, who are they? What do they really believe? Mm, why do they insist on being in the public school instead of having free and better space in so, the church next door? So, Ken, Ken, you might know the answer to some, some of that, uh, or you might have some questions for Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> why? Um, yeah. So, sort of why? why not want to make use of that free and better space? Why want to be in the school so desperately? 
Exactly. Yeah, because well, because they want to fulfill their mission. Like their mission is to somehow get into that system and to have access to those uh, kids that are outside the um, evangelical bubble. You know, so that so that they can be drawn in. I, I like Catherine uh, as I've been listening. Um, what's really stuck out to me is you talking about um, uh, these groups having their own strict definition of what a Christian is, mm-hmm. and having worked for an evangelical organization in the past, you know, in my twenties, um, uh, just that really rung true that it's an, it's sort of drawing kids towards your definition of what a Christian is and, uh, not really going after, um, a more diverse expression, but instead saying, we figured this out and we want to draw you into that. And we want you to identify in this way. And, and then become um, become someone who's like us, telling others that this is how it ought to be. This is the way things are supposed to look. It's, it's amazing though, because this is an organ, like a movement that claims to defend the family. Yeah. <laughs> they don't look like there's good contempt. They're going after other people's children yes. in their public schools. I mean, you, you know, I, just, I can yeah, imagine about turning that around. But it's also just rude. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, when I was with, because I, I worked for Young Life, uh, which is a U.S.-based, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a U.S.-based evangelical organization. Um, and, you know, th- there were a lot of positive aspects to being involved with it. Positive for, I think, for people, for myself, positive too for the kids that were involved. So I do want to acknowledge the nuance of being involved with something like that, that there are positives as well as things that don't resonate as being true for the long term. Um, but yeah, that's what, that's, that was sort of a central, that's what the organization was, is that we wanted to be involved with, um, high school kids in their schools. Uh, we'd go to school and volunteer to be coaches, um, you know, to help with the music program, whatever skills that you had to offer, you'd volunteer those to the school. But the intent was that you could have a chance to talk to kids about, your understanding of the evangelical Christian message. And, and was the goal conversion? And the goal was to, to convert. Like we, in fairness, we did want to um, care for kids regardless of right. whether they mm. converted or not. But, but the goal was that we could, that, you know, yeah. bring, bring, bring them to Jesus as we understood Jesus. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think we have to acknowledge there is a difference, a developmental difference between children at the high school level. Mm. Yes. And children at the elementary age level. I mean, good mm-hmm. clubs go after kids too, too, literally too young to read. A centerpiece yes. of their program is called The Wordless Book. It's got no pictures. I mean, no words. It's just got pictures and colors and shapes. And it's used to convert children who are too young to read. And if you yeah. were to ask a, a child who's like six years old, you know, what after school programs are sponsored by the school and which are sponsored by the Besides, you know, at that age, like my kids would do anything for a cupcake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they believe yeah. the tooth fairy. So yes. um, there's right. a difference between, you know, that and like talking to a 16 or 17 year old who might understand the difference between like uh, a club that's sponsored by the mm. school and one that's not sponsored yeah. by the school. I, I do want to say that I've spoken to a number of students who had great experiences in their public high schools until one of the groups like, Young Life came and then all of a sudden there's all this peer pressure to join and then they felt stigmatized because they belonged to a minority faith or because they Mm. weren't, they weren't. Yeah. And and I, yeah, I think that that is one of the, um, 
you know, as I've moved on in my adult life, um, that is one of the huge um, problems with that kind of expression is this sort of one size fits all way of thinking about spirituality or way of thinking about what it means to be a Christian, you know, is, um, is that you have to comply to this way of seeing. Mm. And, uh, and then, and, and if you really want to get to a, to a, the place that you should be, then what you should be doing is telling other people, you know, about this vision mm. and drawing them into it as well. Um, and I did find in that organization in particular that what you, you kind of drew kids into, into um, the activities of the organization. Like it wasn't like sort of long term, you might have had the idea that their spirituality would grow and kind of become something vaster. But in the short term, you wanted them to be in your program. Like it's a little more tribal almost. Yeah, yeah you yeah. wanted you wanted them to, yeah. you know, um, be in your programs on a weekly basis. You wanted them to participate in your camps in the summer and draw their friends in to the same thing. So uh, there was sort of a, there was sort of a, a sense of, um, um, you know, you were just sort of freeing them to be themselves. You were hoping that they would be right. the self you, that you needed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Catherine, you talk a bit, um, well, not a bit, you, you talk a lot about some just amazing, amazing characters. Like I call them characters because like, I don't know them personally, but, um, Dr. James Dobson. Dr. James Dobson. And like... Dr. Dobson was big in a lot of upbringings, oh, even up here in Canada, in right? Yeah. There was a lot of uh, yeah. Dr. Dobson says. Yeah. And then you've and got you've got the Grams, both Billy and Franklin. And you... I think one of the ones that stood out most to me, because I didn't know his name before, was um, was R.J. Rushdoony. And oh. you oh. outline how, how key he is. And you hear echoes of it throughout your book of, of these ripple effects from him. I'd never heard his name before. Um, I had no idea how foundational he was to a lot of things and a lot of people and leaders that I'd encountered. Do you know um, Rush Dooney, Ken? Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of R.J. Rush Dooney? I haven't. No. Okay, so no. now you will. Would you? Now I will. Yeah. I mean, he was certainly the character I think I was drawn to the most in the book, would you mind um, telling us a little bit about him, kind of educating us a bit on him? Sure, he was a mid-century theologian. I wish I have, I, I sort of fell down a rush to any rat, rabbit hole. Oh. picture, oh, it's that awesome. Sounds, that sounds terrible. I know. <laughs> I mean, the main thing to know about Rushdini is a mid-century theologian uh, thought of as the sort of godfather of uh, Christian Reconstructionism. Um, the the main and he wrote dozens of books. Many of the lines that he has, um, and I can explain them how they sort of you, you'll hear them echoed in many of the yeah. the prime thinkers today. Um, he was really hostile to the principle of equality. That's the main thing to know about him. He really endorsed this austere biblical literalism, mm. rigid hierarchies, which he claimed were ordained by God. He saw it as his job to rescue America from its commitment to what he called godless secularism, very hostile to secularism. Mm -hmm. His theology included an opposition to government assistance to the poor. This should sound familiar. Mm, he wow. capped social welfare programs as literally slavery to the state. This is a term that... A slavery to the state is a term that um, other thinkers have used, like David Barton uses mm -hmm. it, even the Family Research Council, mm -hmm. um, yeah. uh, some of the representatives there cast social welfare programs as, quote, against the biblical model. 
So th this is a kind of the theology, sort of what they call biblical economics is a yeah. really big thing. And uh, Rushdini sort of encapsulated a lot of this stuff. So he sh shares a lot with the Christian nationalist leaders today, the United, idea of the United States as a Christian nation chosen by God as an Orthodox Christian Republic that at some point it deviated horribly from its mission and fell under the control of either atheist or liberal elites. Mm -hmm. This is like the life of his thought and it has sort of remained a cornerstone of the movement. Um, and he also had these, um, he promoted a kind of revisionist history of America, which is also very much a part of the movement today. He said that our founders didn't intend to create a non-sectarian representative mm. democracy, mm. but they, he, he characterized America as a development of, of Christian feudalism. And again, said that, you know, the first amendment was to create freedom for religion, you know, rather than right. uh, sort of separating mm. church and state. Yeah. This again has become an article of faith among the rank and file. Was it uh, he was very hostile to the principle of public education. This is a huge theme throughout uh, yeah. uh, the movement, and we see it in the work of Betsy DeVos today. Well, isn't yeah. it Trump? Didn't Trump this week, he said, uh, this is, of course, in light of George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks and all that's going on down there. And he stood in front of a microphone and said that the civil rights issue of our day is school choice. That, that was yeah. this week. And that's yeah, because of what you, yeah. the, the movement has this long-standing hostility to public education, um, and, hmm. and uh, there's, it's not an accident that Betsy DeVos is uh, Secretary of Education. So I'll tell you something about uh, DeVos. Her family gave at least $5.5 million to D. James Kennedy. I'm sure you, some you guys know who he is. He was the founder of Coral Ridge Ministries. He was uh, on the radio in 1987. He published a book called A Godly Education, uh, a sermon and a book. And he, you know, characterized what they, he called government schools as atheistic, amoral, socialistic, one world. So he was this sort of longstanding hostility to public education sort of baked into um, DeVos's own history of activism. She was active in the sort of voucher movement for many years. Mm -hmm. As you guys know, try, try, takes public money and mm -hmm. sends it off to private, often religious schools yeah. that can do whatever they want. And then she kept promoting these measures, these voucher measures that failed with the, with the voters because people actually want their yeah. public money <laughs> to be accountable. And so she and her, her husband switched to what they called school choice, which sort of conveniently erases the distinction right. between charters and vouchers. But they also realized that with a lot of these charters, some of which are privately run, some of which are actually very religious at their, at their core, they could achieve a lot of the aims of defunding and, and weakening and eventually sort of destroying public education as we know it. Well, do you find that it's in, in one sense, mm -hmm. they kind of create these self-fulfilling prophets prophecies of they totally strip the system of resources and um and then they go back and they say see look nobody can they, they, they can't provide good education and look how bad the infrastructure it's is strategy. and you're like but that like it it's seems like like starve the beast and then bring it to jesus it's like <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's that's find them and weaken them and then say we need religion in the schools and yeah we need to under our private religious schools because yeah. they're doing better. well let's just remember like public schools have to take all kids regardless mm -hmm. of whether they might have uh, ieps you know uh, like a uh, uh, problems yeah. with 
you know, various processing issues or whatever. They take all kids, whatever their issues are, they're, they're really, they can provide wraparound services to families that need um, food assistance and things yeah. like that. They really have to serve all families, whereas charters are allowed to go through a process where they get applications, they can reject some kids and, yeah. uh, and accept others. And even so, a lot of the um, data that's coming out looking at charters versus public schools, like it's not conclusive that one model really works yeah. necessarily better than the other. In yeah. some instances, charters overall have lower scores in certain mm -hmm. measures. So, um, but one thing that is clear, if you, if you starve public schools of the necessary funding, you're really going to end up with weaker schools and yeah. a, a less well-served. Mm -hmm. Ken, Ken, you had a question. Oh, Catherine, like, do, do you think there's a spirit, is there a spiritual philosophy behind the idea that schools should be private Christian? Is there a spiritual philosophy behind that? Because to me, it just sounds like at the root of it is just financial profiting. But no, what, like, what would these what would these people say? Like, you know, it, it's so important that people pay to go. They pay to go to a Christian school. Like, why why would why why do they why does it need to be private? Like, what what like what what mm -hmm. is their what what's the moral center of that? Do you think if well, there they, is one, they believe that education should be provided by the, the responsibility for education should be churches and families and not government and mm -hmm. the hostility to public education, mm -hmm. it goes way back. The first um, uh, instance I could find of somebody using the term government schools to express hostility for public education was a theologian named A.A. A. Hodge. He was mm -hmm. actually um, an admirer of another theologian, a pro very important pro-slavery theologian mm -hmm. named Robert Louis Dabney, who mm -hmm. railed against public schools. He didn't call them government schools. He called them like, you know, state school government, uh, public schools or common schools, he's railed against common schools. He didn't think that white people should be paying money to educate the children of black families. I mean, he was really a terrible, terrible racist. And he also uh, accused these schools of being against promoting atheism, he said they were atheistic, they're promoting mm. socialism. Mm. Again, this is sort of like the, um, you know, those pro-slavery theologians identified liberal Christianity, a tolerance for pluralism and equality with atheism, socialism, communism, the principle of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, which mm -hmm. they thought were just terrible. And they cast that in opposition to the idea of an orderly regulated society where you've got these hierarchies of, of human beings ordained by mm -hmm. God to justify that, always men over women and often mm -hmm. of white people over black people mm -hmm. too and also affirming the sort of biblical literalism. So I think that, you know, hostility to public education is really, it's got a lot of theological roots. Um, Betsy DeVos and her husband were caught on tape uh, at a gathering, a religious gathering, literally called The Gathering. It's for Christian philanthropists hmm. calling their, their um, work in education sphere as uh, a mean, uh, means to advance God's kingdom. They said it's going hmm. to something like, advanced kingdom gain. Mm. This is, mm. they, this, they said this back in 2002, explaining their work in education. Mm. And I actually went back to, you know, um, oh my gosh, you know, I hate to go and I, I hate to criticize religion directly because religious freedom is a, is, is a really important 
principle. It's part of America's founding. But I went into this like the synod, like the the written um, documentation of the um, Dutch Reformed mm. uh, faith, and they actually talk about how you know we shouldn't be sending our kids to public schools. They're atheistic. They're promoting New Age religion. I have it in my book. Um, I don't have it right in front of me, but they actually literally talk about school choice, and this is in their in their like theological documentation. Yeah, I wanted so to, central. Yeah. I wanted to uh, move as we move towards the end to um, kind of talk about contemporary a little bit in terms of some of the dominionism, um, because dominion theology and Christian expression is something that is uh, has been around for a long time. Oh, first, I note that. Um, you're talking about the kind of pro-slavery theology. And in your book, you mentioned even uh, Frederick Douglass and speaking, and, and when he is saying, um, so I don't know if it's during Reconstruction or just before um, the 13th Amendment or something, where he's saying that the, the theologians who kind of have powerful, you know, lots of money he called in churches. $5,000 divines. That's like $5,000, yeah. ton of money at that time. Yeah. It's like, hmm. You know, the ones, the $5,000 divines, the one with high pulpits and $5,000 divines, they're on the side of the slaveholder. Yeah. And hmm. it's like the humble pulpits that were on the side of, um, of the abolitionists. Hmm. And uh, that's true. It tended to be the disempowered, um, uh, underfunded hmm. Um, hmm. ministers, many of whom uh, advocated for the end of slavery. Yeah. Um, but um the, the, it was the many of the most powerful, powerful, wealthy, wealthy. Yeah. and it's interesting yeah. to think right. of the implications yeah. for that now. In terms of the dominionist stuff, uh, the theology, there's interesting expressions of that now, and I didn't know if you had any comment on this. You don't talk about it at, at length in the book, um, and I don't know if I'm correct in this or not. But one of the things that I observe is is interestingly a coming together of a more conservative, whether you'd say like a Southern Baptist expression or something, the more traditionally conservative expressions of, of Christian understanding or theology with um, actually one that they weren't that aligned with until fairly recently, and that is a prosperity gospel. So that, and it's interesting because there's a dominionist theology within the more conservative elements that takes a certain expression, but then there's the dominionist theology is huge within the prosperity gospel as well. And with Trump, I've seen these groups coming together so that you have a Paula White, for example, <laughs> echoing things of a Franklin Graham. This is, this is, I've, I never would have imagined this years ago, hmm. but I think I don't know how you react to that kind of coming together and whether you just see that, well, that's what the power has done. It's what power does. It's really mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, White is a, is a woman, obviously, and I think someone like Franklin Graham would probably consider female preachers really heretical. On the other hand, you know, they're willing to set aside uh, theological distinctions in service of a, you know, common religion. I mean, let's remember uh, Paula White, she called uh, uh, God... Uh, Trump, you know, God's candidate yeah. or something like that. Mm. It is a king that is raised up by God. They're yes. always talking about kings. And, king, right. yeah. you know, the funny thing about kings is, you know, they don't have to obey the rules. They're yeah. the law. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the reason for all the talk about kinging. And it, it sort of hits home the fact that this is an anti-democratic yes. ideology. Yeah. It doesn't believe in sort of balance of powers. They really believe in mm. sort of as I think as uh, Bill Barr has called it, you know, Attorney General Bill Barr's sort of executive, executive mm -hmm. uh, yeah. know, sort of more power to the executive. It's mm -hmm. a well, more- Well, that's how they, 
that's how they rationalize the support of Trump, knowing that he is all the things they argued against in terms of uh, morality and such in the past. That was the perfect vessel through whom God chose to enact his Yeah, will. he's yes. like this biblical character mm. who is a king who's yeah. terrible, yeah. but God is using him, right? Iris and it is, it is interesting that Paula White and Franklin Graham meet in the Oval Office occupied by Donald Trump. I think there's something historically that, uh, you know, years back, hopefully, years from now, we'll look back and hopefully go, okay, that's where some of this really started to come apart. Mm. I don't know if you do you yeah. feel mm. do you feel any hope that that this I mean we've we've um we've written the obituary for this kind of stuff before. Um is there any hope that some of this could uh could shuffle off with Trump? Of course. I, well, I, look, the movement preceded long preceded Trump mm -hmm. and it will long outlast him. Mm. But you know, I think the what we're seeing right now is that, look, elections have consequences. Trump has put his stamp on over 23% of the federal judiciary. He's already put in two Supreme Court justices, I think, to a largely underappreciated degree. The movement knows that they're going to get what they want through the courts. That's, you know, I think the tool, the, a lot of the legal strategists of the religious right are kind of leading the strategy of the movement. Um, so, you know, the, the, the problems that we're facing are really political problems. I think the solutions are political too. Um, but I do think, of course, there's hope. There, you know, we're seeing much more activism today yeah. than uh, mm -hmm. it, so three or four years ago, for sure. And um, I think that the challenge, of course, is it's easier in a way to unite a smaller group of people around a radical core than it is to unite a more a larger more disparate people who are only united by their opposition to what they're seeing um you know they, they really have figured out that all that matters is who turns out on election day they say that i mean ralph reed mm. said that he mm -hmm. remember i was at one of the events that he was giving and he said um don't pay attention to the polls our numbers are declining all that matters is who turns out on election day. And then think about it. They've invested for decades in all the tools of modern political campaigns, you know, data, media, and messaging. And they've engaged in this really disgusting race-based gerrymandering and voter suppression, or what Reid calls the Republican reapportionment advantage. He said it's sort of like in this sort of jaunt yeah. way. Like That's people. a very like sanitized <laughs> yeah. phrase. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Republican reapportionment advantage. If it's 50-50, or if Democrats are winning between one and three point one and three percent, we win. Mm. And then if it's four to seven percent, it's a jump ball. And if Democrats are eight, pulling eight and above, then they win. So that just shows how wow. much better Democrats have to do, how much better yeah. they have to be mm. at turning up mm. the vote in order to win elections. One of the things, uh, one of the things we spoke about with uh, an author named Matthew Avery Sutton, who wrote a book uh, called American Apocalypse on the rise of fundamentalism. So he's going more from like 1900 on. And yeah, he pretty your, much stops in like the 70s. Yeah, like, there's a little bit after. Really quickly. Uh, and then your book really helps us because it's kind of not, not that it's only 1979 on, but there's a lot of emphasis there. Um, and he speaks about how this movement went from fringe to mainstream. Um, that you must have seen some of that. And one of the things that you're arguing, I think, in your book is this is really, really, really mainstream and powerful. Um, but yet you must have seen so many things that are really kind of fringy, like that you can't believe that this is mainstream. Have, like you've been at Museum of the Bible or have you been to Ken Ham's thing? 
You've yeah. been there? Oh. <laughs> what do you feel when you're in these places? What have you seen that you've looked and gone, oh. I mean, I, it's fascinating to me. Obviously, I love the work I do. Otherwise, mm. I wouldn't do it. Um, it's, um, you know, there's a part of me that's just sort of, you know, goes into sort of with this sort of anthropological mindset, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it would be a really a nicer world if we could just allow one another to have our faith and our sort of mm-hmm. cultural references and our tradition mm-hmm. side of set aside the question of politics to the side, but we can't. The fact is mm-hmm. there's a movement in our midst that wants to um, undermine our democracy. Uh, uh, it wants to undermine the principles that have served our country of, of true religious freedom, you know, that have served our country very well since our nation's founding, you know, founding even as so many other countries have been torn apart by right. sectarian um, problems. Right. And, um, you know, they, they, they really want to roll back a lot of the, the gains that have been made. I, I don't think it's fair to, you know, that, that large numbers of people have had their votes stolen from them. Mm-hmm. I don't no. think it's right to establish a hierarchy of rights in our country, um, uh, you know, I really believe in the, you know, vision of, of America that, you know, our founders sort of came up with that's been implemented so imperfectly over time. But these are ideals, ideals of equality and, and fair representation that really um, we should aspire to continue to work toward. Yeah, you see, mm-hmm. like you, you wrote Good News Club. What year did you, did that come out? Good News Club? Yeah. 2012, was it? That was 2012, yeah. So, you know, this is, this is, you know Barack Obama's president, and you're a long way before Trump. So mm-hmm. I, I just, I, as I was reading some of this, I thought, what must you have felt when Trump was elected? That these th- these things you'd learned about so much and researched so much, and you're like, it's right there, you know, in the Oval all, Office. I know I wasn't at all surprised, and it really annoyed me that there are people sort of in more progressive bubbles that mm. just sort of took the, you know, consequence. They thought it was a given that. Clinton would win mm-hmm. and I would, you know, well, they don't know how the, they're really getting out yeah. the vote. It's fearsome get out the vote machine. And so, is that the uh, same? Is that the same 2020? Yeah, I do. Okay. I mean, I, I don't think it's, I think it's a, a, a jump ball, yeah. I guess. Is, okay. <laughs> I think, I, I think it's a jump ball. I'm not going to predict, but I do think that, you know, we, we do have, have chance because people are um, really concerned about this. I mean, I think we can't discount the, effect of the right-wing propaganda sphere. If you spend all of your time um, watching Fox News and, and, yeah. and reading part and everything off to the right of those, you know, you're, you're just going to think Trump is the most amazing guy in the world. And, and, um, and, and you're also not going to, I'm also seeing this, these weird conspiracies show up in places that really they should never, mm-hmm. like all the <laughs> stuff is really alarming. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. the the guy pushed down in Buffalo or something, and all of a sudden that's yeah. making the means, to the, you know, the news. And well, I want we want to thank you for taking this time mm-hmm. with us. We, yeah, thank you. I hope, of course, to 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 be a bit political. We're up here in Canada, but you know, so we don't get to vote. Well, Rick does, right? Rick, yeah. he's a dual citizen. Dual citizen. <laughs> but um, we, you know, I can speak for those of us here in the, in this room and for Ken in, in another room that. Uh, I'm saying from my Christian faith that I hope that Trump is decimated politically in 2020 because, uh, and, and you outline well in your book that 
this is, uh, it, so from my Christian faith, this is one of the most damaging things that's happened to Christian faith in our contemporary scene and expression. And mm. in Christian theology, we used to be able to call things like this idolatry, and power has to do with idolatry. And, uh, you know, we're hopeful. It's part of the whole reason for our conversations around here that, that there will be these kinds of turns. We know the stakes are, in a sense, higher for, for you living there. Um, because there's this election coming up in 134 days or something we're counting to, and uh, and so we hope to we hope to watch um, a shift in this. But even more importantly than that, uh, our hope is that some of this loses some of its air. No doubt, if if Biden wins the culture wars, you know they're going to try to ramp up all yeah. of this stuff and have the. But hopefully, people like yourself and others will help us to see. Um, some of the ways that we can learn and respond and, and really gain. So thank you so much mm. for taking the time. It means a great mm -hmm. deal to us. We'll be in contact with yes. you by email yeah. and such. And we're going to keep following your work. Are you working on anything right now? I just continue to write on these issues. and um, So not a new uh, book right now? like a yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not yet. Okay. <laughs> so it just came out, Todd. Yeah, so no, we're, we're, I was just wondering if we're, yeah. yeah, we'll keep reading. We'll, um, we're going to put links uh, to, if it's okay with you, to the various Please. number of articles you've, you've written in other publications. Uh, again, we want to tell people to go out and, and buy this book and then Good News Club as well if, if, you're, uh, if you really respond well to this one. Thank you to Ken for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, Ken, thank you guys. And for reflecting you. on your uh, years uh, connection yeah. here. <laughs> and to Allison and to producer Rick. Thanks so much, all. Thanks. Thank you. Next week, part three, the conclusion of this special series. We're joined by Dr. Willie James Jennings of Yale Divinity School to speak with us about white supremacy and Christianity. <laughs>